The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man, Lecture 7 A Christian View of Social Order and the State, Part 2 the Christian Doctrine of the State. In this lecture we shall be looking specifically at the institution of the state, that is to say the civil magistrate and its sphere of authority. What does the Bible tell us about the role and authority of the state or civil magistrate? First, the state in the Bible is defined as the administration of public justice. Kings and rulers are charged by God's law with the task of judgment, that is to say, doing justice, punishing crime. See, for example, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. In pursuit of this office, the state has the duty to protect those under its authority from crimes committed within the nation by members of the society over which it exercises a God-ordained rule in the political sphere, and also from crimes committed against those under its protection or against the nation as a whole by individuals outside the nation and by foreign organisations and nations. And where such crime has been committed, it has a duty to bring to justice and punish those who have committed the crime. This definition of the state includes the executive, legislative, judicial, diplomatic, military and law enforcement agencies necessary for the state to carry out its task properly. In doing this, however, the state must act according to law at all times and the law under which it must act must be framed according to the Christian principle of the rule of law. The Christian doctrine of the rule of law is that all man-made law should conform to the higher law of God and this basic principle was for centuries a principle of both English common law and equity. This principle is clearly stated in the following two propositions from Doctor and Student, a legal treatise by Christopher St Germain published in 1523 in Latin and 1531 in English. Proposition 1 Quote, when the law eternal or the will of God is known to his creatures reasonable by the light of natural understanding or by light of natural reason, that is called the law of reason. And when it is showed of heavenly revelation, then it is called the law of God. And when it is showed unto him by order of a prince or of any other secondary governor that hath power to set law upon his subjects, then it is called the law of man, though originally it be made of God. Unquote. Proposition 2. Quote, For if any law made of men bind any person to anything that is against the said laws, the law of reason or the law of God, it is no law but corruption and manifest error. Unquote. 
Here is a diagram that explains these two propositions. This definition of the state as a ministry of public justice is based on biblical principles. That is to say, it is a systematic statement based on the functions of rulers as described in scripture. This is evident if we look at the history of the development of the state throughout the Bible. Before the fall, of course, there was no state since there was no sin. An ideal world in which there were no sin would not require a state. The function of the state is a negative one, to restrain certain kinds of evil and to bring to justice those who commit such evil acts. We must reject, therefore, the teaching of Thomas Aquinas regarding the natural origin of the state and its validation by means of an appeal to natural law. Speaking of Aquinas' political theology, A.P. de Entreviz says that, and I quote, If political institutions are an aspect of natural morality, this means that the justification of the state and the ground of political obligation must be sought in the very nature of man. This is precisely the leading idea which St. Thomas derives from Aristotle, unquote. De Entreviz goes on to say that for Aquinas, and again I quote, Man is a political animal because he is a social being. This means that the state must have its roots in social experience, that it cannot be or cannot be solely the creation of human will. The state is not a work of art but a historical product. It is the highest expression of human fellowship. All that pertains to that fellowship is natural to man." Unquote. Furthermore, according to Joseph Leclerc, and again I quote, basing itself upon Aristotle's politics, on which he had written a commentary, St Thomas Aquinas pointed out that, because of its purely human and natural origin, the government of pagan kings remained, even after the advent of Christ, perfectly lawful, unquote. Consequently, Aquinas taught that, and again I quote, Infidelity is not in itself incompatible with political power, since the latter owes its origins to the law of nations, which is a human law. The distinction between the faithful and the infidels, which arises from divine law, does not automatically cancel human law. Unquote. However, this conflicts with Scripture, specifically with Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 6 which teaches that all authority is derived from God and that rulers are servants of God. They have an absolute obligation, therefore, to bow the knee to Christ and submit to his law. Furthermore, the state is not a natural institution for mankind, but rather an institution established by divine revelation as a result of man's fall into sin. The fall says Ethelbert Stauffer, and I quote, has given rise to an historical situation so threatening as to call for emergency measures to prevent man's world from being swamped by the powers of destruction. The emergency measures have been taken in the establishment of the civil power, for according to the New Testament, the civil power is the divinely ordained means for the due ordering of life in a world where chaos is constantly threatening. Unquote. Since man was created good, sin was not part of the original, that is to say the natural, order of creation. 
The state is therefore an institution of God's common grace, the purpose of which is to restrain and mitigate specific evil consequences of the unnatural condition in which mankind now lives as a result of original sin. It is entirely incorrect from the biblical perspective to see the state as part of the natural order of things, indeed as that in which man realises his true end as Plato and Aristotle had conceived it. Aquinas allowed himself to be led astray at this point, and many others, by his idolatry of pagan philosophy, Aristotle, with which he attempted to reconcile the doctrines of the Christian faith. One of the consequences of Aquinas' compromise with the pagan philosophy of Aristotle was an idolatrous and tyrannical doctrine of the state. According to E. L. Hebden Taylor, and I quote, This Thomist attempt to accommodate Aristotle's theory that social institutions and political life are natural and therefore just with the Christian teaching that they are the result of human sinfulness may be seen in Thomas's attempt to justify existing inequalities among men. According to Augustine, God had made the rational man to be the master of animals, not of his fellow men, thus showing by visible signs what is the proper order of nature and what are the consequences of sin. Aquinas resolves the contradiction between these two opposing points of view in typical scholastic fashion. He admits that, had men remained in the state of innocence, the more jarring inequalities between them, such as the distinction between masters and slaves, would not have existed. Yet he claims even in the state of innocence, the fundamental difference between man and man would have been apparent. For, as Aristotle points out, men are not equal, but unequal. Everything is clear if we distinguish between two different sorts of subjection. Slavery, the subjectio servilis, in which man is degraded as a tool, is contrary to nature and can therefore be explained as a consequence of sin. But political relationships, the subjectio civilis, of man to man, which is necessary for the common good, is not a consequence of sin, for it is founded upon the very nature of man. Authority and obedience would still have been required, even if the state of innocence had been preserved, because, as Aristotle said, man is a social and political animal. Society would not be possible without those who are more wise and righteous having command over the rest. Thus does Aquinas get over the difficulty posited by sin, confining it to narrow limits, merely to explain such hardships of social life as serfdom and the harsh character of the penal law with its attendant torture. Sin for Thomas can have no part in the rational justification of the state because political obligation is inherent in man's nature. Man is unthinkable without the state, because it is only in the state that he can fulfil himself. Unquote. The state, as conceived by Aquinas, however, should be subject to the spiritual authority of the Pope. Aquinas taught that, and I quote, the temporal power is subject to the spiritual as the body to the soul. Unquote. Furthermore, according to Aquinas, and again I quote, the ministry of this kingdom, that is to say the kingdom of Christ, 
is entrusted not to the rulers of this earth, but to priests, so that temporal affairs may remain distinct from those spiritual. And, in particular, it is delegated to the high priest, the successor of Peter and vicar of Christ, the Roman pontiff, to whom all kings in Christendom should be subject, as to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For those who are concerned with the subordinate ends of life must be subject to him who is concerned with the supreme end and be directed by his command. And under Christ's law, kings must be subject to priests. Unquote. As a result of the influence of this medieval Roman Catholic dogma, all authority, both spiritual and temporal, was believed ultimately to be concentrated into the hands of the papacy. St Thomas, says A. P. de Entreviz, and I quote, lays down with uncompromising clearness the principles which underlie the medieval conception of the state. Unquote. J. M. Speer summarised the problem with this syncretization of the Christian faith with pagan political philosophy in the following way. Quote, the universalistic ideal of Plato and Aristotle is well known. They conceived of the state as a whole, which includes all other societal relationships as dependent parts, in need of the whole in order to be complete. Society is thus thought of as a relation between a whole to its parts. The individual is preceded by the state. The state is the highest good and everything must serve it. The state has a metaphysical basis. It rests upon the rational, essential nature of man, who is a social being. This ancient universalistic conception of the state lacks any circumscription of scripture. The state is the great Moloch. Everything else is sacrificed to it. This view overlooks the fact that the state is not a thing of nature. The state is grounded in the historical aspect. The ancient view was generally retained and modified in the Middle Ages. It was accommodated to Christian thought by means of the schema of nature and grace. The state was considered to be the highest relationship within the sphere of nature and the church was considered the highest relationship in the sphere of grace. The church was above the state and the latter must serve the former. The church state, rather than a state church, was considered ideal. The state ruled by the grace of papal authority. Unquote. Consequently, as E. L. Hebden Taylor points out, and again I quote, the medieval pontiffs of the Church of Rome may thus claim the distinction of having revived those pagan conceptions of oriental despotic monarchy which the German barbarians supposed they had disposed of once and for all when they overthrew the Roman Caesars. In the papal programme for supremacy in the fullness of power, we may therefore rightly detect the seed thoughts of the modern pagan totalitarian state. Totalitarian communism thus merely marks the final stage in the process of the secularization of the medieval papal programme to bring in utopia by brute force. In both its religious and political forms, individual freedom is destroyed. Unquote. From the biblical perspective, the state is not a natural part of the created order. It is, therefore, not natural to the life of man. 
It is, rather, an institution established by divine mandate to deal with certain of the social consequences of man's fall into sin, namely the administration of public justice. Abraham Kuyper stated the biblical doctrine clearly, and I quote, Every state formation, every assertion of the power of the magistrate, every mechanical means of compelling order and of guaranteeing a safe course of life is therefore always something unnatural, something against which the deeper aspirations of our nature rebel, and which, on this very account, may become the source of both a dreadful abuse of power on the part of those who exercise it, and of a contumacious revolt on the part of the multitude. Thus originated the battle of the ages between authority and liberty, and in this battle it was the very innate thirst for liberty which proved itself the God-ordained means to bridle the authority, wheresoever it degenerated into despotism. And thus all true conception of the nature of the state and of the assumption of authority by the magistrate and on the other hand, all true conception of the right and duty of the people to defend liberty depends on what Calvinism has here placed in the foreground as a primordial truth. That God has instituted the magistrates by reason of sin. Unquote. The doctrine of the state and of natural law espoused by Aquinas was syncretistic a deliberate conflation of Christianity with paganism as represented by Aristotle. There is no sphere of natural law, that is to say religiously neutral law, beyond the jurisdiction of God in Christ to which rulers, whether Christian or pagan, can appeal to justify their disobedience to God. In the pursuit of their duty to rule, they owe an absolute obedience to God's law. True justice, said Augustine, and I quote, has no existence save in that republic whose founder and ruler is Christ, unquote. Again, Abraham Kuyper stated the biblical principle clearly, quote, Authority over men cannot arise from men, just as little from a majority over against a minority, for history shows almost on every page that very often the minority was right, and thus to the first Calvinist thesis that sin alone has necessitated the institution of government, this second and no less momentous thesis is added, that all authority of governments on earth originates from the sovereignty of God alone. Unquote. Without this, rulers are no better than bands of robbers which is precisely what, as a consequence of their extreme taxation policies, modern British governments increasingly resemble. The famous passage from Augustine sums up the matter poignantly. Quote, Justice being taken away, then, what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men. It is ruled by the authority of a prince... It is knit together by the Pact of the Confederacy. The booty is divided by the law agreed on. If, by the admittance of abandoned men, this evil increases to such a degree that it holds places, fixes abodes, takes possession of cities and subdues peoples, it assumes the more plainly the name of a kingdom, because the reality is now manifestly conferred on it, 
not by the removal of covetousness, but by the addition of impunity. Indeed, that was an apt and true reply, which was given to Alexander the Great by a pirate who had been seized. For when that king had asked the man what he meant by keeping hostile possession of the sea, he answered with bold pride, What thou meanest by seizing the whole earth, but because I do it with a petty ship, I am called a robber, whilst thou, who dost it with a great fleet, are styled emperor. Unquote. It seems also, however, that there was no state after the fall and prior to the flood, even though sin had entered into the human race. In the cases of Cain and Lamech, see Genesis chapter 4, verses 15 and 23 to 24, there was no state to bring them to justice for their crimes, and scripture seems to suggest that no one was authorised to do this, since we are told that, quote, the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him, unquote. Verse 15. It seems further that Lamech, recognising this, used it as a precedent for his denial that anyone should bring him to justice for his crimes. It is therefore reasonable to conjecture that it was just this absence of institutional restraint exercised by society on human sin that led to the dire state of wickedness that preceded the flood. God intervened in this situation and judged the antediluvian world, saving only Noah and his family in the process. In the covenant that God then established with Noah and all his posterity, that is to say, the whole of humanity to the end of time, God promised never to judge the whole world in this way again, but instead required man himself to put to death those who commit murder. Certainly, the death penalty is established for the first time in the covenant made with Noah after the flood. See Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 to 6. This seems to be, therefore, the beginning of the institution of the state, that is to say, the administration of public justice by society itself. It is to be noted that the rationale for this, the reason for the establishing of the state, is not welfare, education or the equal distribution of wealth in society, but quite simply the restraint of crime and the punishment of criminals, that is to say, the administration of public justice. Judgment. Again, we see in this the divine origin of the office of the magistrate, that is to say the state. According to the Roman Catholic theologian Joseph Leclerc, and I quote, the view that the state is of purely secular and natural origin does not present any difficulty from the point of view of Catholic doctrine, unquote. But according to scripture, the state does not have a secular or natural origin. Its origin is in the divine revelation given to Noah after the flood. The state is a divinely ordained institution, not the product of the natural life of mankind, whether in the form of a social contract or as a natural development of the family, clan or tribe. Its function is to deal with specific social consequences of man's fall into sin. It was instituted by divine revelation to replace the direct execution of God's wrath upon mankind. In other words, its function is to mediate the judgment of God on earth against specific kinds of sin. It must act, therefore, in all things according to God's law. 
Rebellion against God and the complete abandonment of God's law by the state constitutes the failure of the state's divine vocation and consequently the failure of the divinely ordained mediating institution between mankind and the direct wrath of God upon society. A total breakdown in the mediation of divine justice in the work of the state, therefore, must always herald the most fearful and disastrous of consequences for society, since at this point the only way that justice can be done is by means of God's wrath being revealed directly from heaven against the unrighteousness, that is to say the injustice, of men. See Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 32. This same principle regarding the state's divine vocation as a minister of God's wrath, God's justice, is evident as we follow the historical development of the state as it is given to us in the biblical record. In the Mosaic period, judges are appointed to deal with matters of justice, that's to say judgment, among the people. See, for example, Exodus chapter 18 verses 13 to 27 Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 13 to 17 and chapter 16 verses 18 to 20. When kings are anointed to lead the people, they are charged with the task of doing justice, that is to say judgment. See 1 Samuel chapter 8 verses 4 and 5, 2 Samuel chapter 8 verses 15, 1 Kings chapter 3 7 to 12, 2 Chronicles chapter 19 5 to 11, Psalm 71 verses 1 and 2, Psalm 82 verses 1 to 4 and Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 and 17. After the Babylonian captivity, when the people returned to the land of Israel, their rulers were charged with making sure that justice was done and that judgment was made according to God's law. See Ezra chapter 7 verses 25 to 26. The clearest and fullest statement of this principle, however, is given by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7. Here is what he says. Quote, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour." This is the locus classicus of the Christian doctrine of the state. Here we are told that the magistrate, that is to say rulers, the state, is a minister of God to execute justice, that is to say God's wrath, verse 4, upon those who do evil. For this purpose the state bears the sword, 
Paul drives his argument home by repeating himself. Quote, For this cause, that is the administration of public justice, pay ye tribute. For they, that is to say rulers, are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Unquote. Verse 6. What Paul says here, quote, attending continually on this very thing, unquote, defines the purpose of the state, namely the punishment of evildoers. According to Blass and De Brunner's, a Greek grammar of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, the term translated in the authorised version as, quote, this very thing, unquote, auto tauto, means, quote, just this and nothing else, unquote. This defines and severely limits the role of the state. It is not the duty of the state or magistrate to act as a ministry of welfare, education, trade and industry, healthcare, transport, etc. The sole duty of the state is the administration of public justice, quote, just this and nothing else, unquote. It could not be clearer. When the state exceeds the boundaries of its God-given role and authority and takes upon itself functions for which God has ordained other forms of government, for example the family, which has the duty to provide welfare and education for its members, it denies men their true liberty under God and in so doing it becomes a tyrant. Second, the state is to execute justice, that is to say judgment, in terms of God's law. The magistrate is the servant of God, a minister of God, Paul tells us. He is, quote, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil, unquote. Whose wrath is this? The magistrate's own? Of course not. The magistrate is one who executes God's wrath upon evildoers as God's servant. The context of the passage is not some nebulous idea of natural law. The magistrate is not there to execute the will of the people or the will of the majority of the people. The magistrate is the minister of God, the one who applies the judgment of God as revealed in his law to those who do evil. He is accountable to God and must execute judgment according to God's will. See Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 18 to 20. Third, in the pursuance of its legitimate function as a ministry of public justice, the state has the right to collect taxes. But again, it is clear from what Paul says in Romans 13 verse 6 that the taxes collected may be used only for the purpose of enabling the state to perform its divinely ordained function as a ministry of public justice. Quote, for this cause pay ye tribute, unquote, says Paul. That is to say, the administration of public justice. The state is not authorised by God's word to collect taxes for the purpose of redistributing wealth within society or for providing welfare, educational or other services unconnected with its duty to administer public justice. The collection of taxes by the state is legitimised by scripture but only for this specific purpose. For the state to collect taxes for purposes that lie outside this limited role is a transgression of the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, which the state is charged by God's word with enforcing. In collecting taxes for other purposes, the state acts outside its God-given authority. 
the fact that it does have a God-given role and that in the discharge of this role it has divine authority to collect taxes for this purpose does not justify the collection of taxes for anything else. Paul offers no support or warrant in this passage of scripture to governments that act outside their God-given role as ministers of public justice. Fourth, the Bible also restricts the state's ability to amass the kind of power and wealth necessary to establish totalitarian government. See Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 16 to 17. It is also clear from 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 1 to 24, the case of Naboth's vineyard, that the state has no right of eminent domain, that is to say sovereignty over all land in the nation, with the right of expropriation, for example compulsory purchase, which was the basis of medieval feudalism and still remains a basic feature of modern secular humanist and especially socialist political ideology. It is clear from this that the state, that is to say the civil government of the land, is severely restricted in its functions and powers and may not encroach on the legitimate functions of other God-ordained institutions and governments, for example the family, the church and the individual, without rebelling against God and ultimately bringing itself under his judgment. Unfortunately, this is precisely what has happened in the modern world. The Christian concept of a limited state with a specific function as one form of government among others is not a widely accepted political ideal. Even among those who regard themselves as politically conservative, the state is usually deemed to have a much wider function than that of impartially administering public justice. Christians must resist this and seek to reform society. The Great Commission demands the discipling of the whole nation, and this includes, though is by no means limited to, the function of the state. Here we face a problem, particularly in Britain, although I suspect this problem is more widespread, and it is this, that very often Christians, seeing that society is turning away from God and being repaganized, have lobbied governments to reform society by using the machinery of state to correct the ills they see around them. The problem is that in requiring the state to act in this way, they have lent credibility to the apostate state's claims of total sovereignty, that is to say, supreme and comprehensive authority over society, and have therefore helped to promote an idolatrous political ideal. An example will help here. The primary responsibility for education lies with the family. But the state has usurped the role of the family and now provides state education services funded by taxation, at least for most families. This restricts the freedom of the family to provide for itself and forces it into dependence on the state. Even though private education is still available, most families cannot afford it because of the high taxes they have to pay which includes taxes that are levied to fund state education. Most families cannot easily afford to pay twice for the education of their children. Because of this situation, homeschooling is the only viable option for most Christian families in Britain. Therefore, private schooling tends to be restricted to the wealthier members of society. The same happens in other spheres, for example, welfare and healthcare. Most individuals and families are taxed so heavily to pay for state welfare 
that their ability to fund private Christian alternatives is severely restricted. The greater part of society is therefore forced into some form of state dependence in terms of health care and welfare. Lobbying government to establish and fund Christian schools or to reform the current system to make it more Christian will not overcome this basic problem. Such reform would not be successful anyway. It has been tried repeatedly in Britain and has not yet worked. The whole system is now aggressively secular humanist in its philosophy and has no time for Christianity anyway. And even if it were successful, it would still leave most people dependent upon the state. The only answer to this situation that is consistent with the Christian view of social order is for the government to privatise the whole of the education and welfare systems. This would then put these social services back into their proper spheres of operation, the family, the church and the individual, leaving the state free to pursue the administration of public justice in a more biblical and rational way. What Christians should not be doing, therefore, is lobbying government to provide services such as education according to Christian criteria, that is to say Christian schools. That is not the function of the state. Christians should be lobbying government to restrict itself to pursuing the role that God has assigned to it in Scripture and limiting its collection of taxes to this specific role. This would vastly reduce the tax burden on everyone in society, enabling families to make provision for themselves and also enabling them to support Christian charities and churches in making provision for the less fortunate in society, that is to say, in providing a Christian safety net for the poor. This will, of course, demand a great deal of sacrifice from Christians. But this is what Christ has called us to. We are to pick up our cross and follow Christ. And our commission is to disciple the nation, to bring it under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this includes all the social functions of the various institutions that make up the nation. Unless Christians are willing and prepared to start providing Christian alternatives in these spheres of life, the state will not be reduced in size and brought in line with its proper function as defined by scripture and we shall continue to live as slaves of the modern secular state. Reforming the state is only one part of our task. Society consists of more than the state and unless we are prepared to fulfil our responsibilities as families and churches for ourselves, the state will continue to grow in size We'll continue to limit our freedom and we shall continue to pay more and more taxes. Requiring the state to fulfil our responsibilities for us will not produce a Christian society. It will merely continue to lend credibility to an already idolatrous conception of the state. There is an important role for the state but it is limited and it must conform to the Christian ideals set forth in scripture. Only then will the church, the family and the individual be free and able to make their proper Christian contribution to society. The modern state plays God much of the time and Christians have become complicit in this because they have not sought to pursue a rigorous Christian ideal of social order. But in neglecting this they have failed to see that they have neglected the Great Commission and that the inevitable effect of this has been the repaganization of society. Along with this, our freedom to preach the gospel and to live the Christian life in its fullness has been curtailed. In the correct ordering of society, the function of the state is negative. 
Its purpose is to restrain crime and punish criminals according to the principles of justice set forth in Scripture. In doing this, the state creates a climate in which the family, the church and the individual can be free to develop their vocations positively according to God's word, to the glory of God and the benefit of society. A Christian view of the state, therefore, requires a recognition of the proper functions of each of the social spheres and respect for their legitimate authority. Reform of the modern state, according to biblical principles, requires first, limitation of the state's activity to its God-ordained function as a ministry of public justice, and second, that those spheres or institutions whose roles have been usurped by the state should stop abdicating their responsibilities to the state and start fulfilling their proper functions in society in obedience to God's word. There is only one way that this can be achieved. The church must constitute herself as a true society, a prophetic social order that functions across the whole spectrum of human society and manifests the kingdom of God in the way she lives. This kind of reform will mean a significant upheaval in the way that the church thinks and lives. This will involve a great deal of sacrifice as Christians begin making those changes to their family and church lives that God's word requires. But without this sacrifice of obedience, neither our own nation nor the world as a whole will be one for Christ. End of Lecture 7Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.